Hello and welcome to the test screening. I'm Billy. I'm Chloe. We're two film school graduates and cinephiles who can't seem to get enough of the big screen. So now we're bringing you our weekly insights into the biggest releases, hottest topics and forgotten classics every Monday. Welcome back to the test screening. My name is Chloe. And my name's Billy. We have got such a busy episode. <laughs> now I say this every week, but it really is busy today. So <laughs> we're gonna go we're gonna go straight into discussions. Uh BAFTAs, 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 BAFTAs. We've been talking about it for the last couple of weeks. What were your thoughts on the winners? You know, I was I was very happy and and quite pleasantly surprised. I was not expecting All Quiet on the Western Front to clear up in the way that it did. It won seven awards overall. It won Best Film, Best Director, Best Film Not in the English Language, Sound, Cinematography, Score, and Adapted Screenplay. And, you know, whilst it's not my personal favourite of, say, all the, the general awards contenders and the Best Picture nominees at the Oscars, I, I prefer tar women talking and particularly everything everywhere all at once it was kind of somewhat of a worry of mine going into awards season that banshees of the fablemans were just going to clear up and that's not to say that they are subpar films i like the banshees of any sharon very much and the more i think about it the more it grows on me and i do think the fablemans is solid if pretty generally unremarkable in the grander scheme of steven spielberg's discography i did think that in particular, particularly with Banshees, because it's received very high critical acclaim, and also uh, it's it's more palatable to a general audience than something that's quite esoteric like Tar, and very out there like Everything Everywhere. It it did feel to me like Banshees was gonna maybe undeservedly clear up a lot of the major awards, but I actually much prefer All Quiet on the Western Front as a film to that and The Fablemans. So I'm I'm pleased for it, and it's nice to see a film not in the English language again. You know, because recently we had Parasite clearing up a lot of the major awards. It's nice to see another non-English language film receiving that kind of award success. You know, when they've been so adverse to giving those big prizes to foreign films in the past. So I'm I'm all here. I'm here for it. I was really pleased. I mean, I can't really comment because I've not seen All Quiet on the Western Front. You've got to take my criticism with a grain of salt here. <laughs> I do think that it's just not my kind of film in the same way that a lot of the other nominees are. I tend to kind of find more films, you know, I think the performances are usually amazing, you know, they're very gut-wrenching. They're just not the kind of things that I choose to watch mm. very often. It's just not my kind of cup of tea, really. Um, whereas I was surprised that Tar didn't do as well as it uh, was predicted to and I was also kind of disappointed that um everything everywhere all at once didn't do as well as I would have hoped because that's probably my favorite film of last year I, I mm. thoroughly enjoyed it I did enjoy Banshees of Inner Sharon a lot I think it's mostly because screenplay um I mean it is very theater I get the criticism of of that but there's something about like dark comedy and that kind of style of delivery that just just gets me it's just so good i was really happy that barry keen um got best supporting actor i thought that was well deserved i thought his performance was fantastic oh yeah i mean you know what my main criticism of the baftas is don't you you can guess you can guess uh was it the elvis win i think yes (laughs) i just can't get my head around it billy i can't it got best casting and i mean tom hanks that just nullifies it <laughs> immediately, doesn't it? <laughs> it's like, what was... I mean, sure, Austin Butler was fine, in my opinion. Like, everyone else was saying he channeled it, like, channeled Elvis. And I'm like, I don't think he did. Just, <laughs> I didn't feel it the same way that a lot of others did. But then I also don't feel like the love for it was... I've not felt the love for Elvis the same way that I felt the love for, say, Rocket Man or even Bohemian Rhapsody. Know, and just in in general, I think it was very lukewarm for me. Mm. Um, so yeah, that that shocked me. It's just it's just not my favourite. <laughs> no, it's certainly I've, not my not my favourite either. <laughs> hair and makeup should have gone to everything, everywhere, all at once. People can fight me. 
<laughs> I don't I don't think people will fight you on that one. Um even, you know, things like Babylon or Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris, which is all about clothing, I think potentially would have been, you know, better choices for the costume category. I mean I mean I get that the evocation and the reconstruction of a lot of Elvis's iconic outfits are is obviously very technically impressive, but you know, does it it is it all that original? No, because we're we're basing it off, you know, a real life, well documented piece of clothing. So I would have liked to have seen, you know, makeup and hair go elsewhere. But I'm um, just interestingly on the case of uh, costumes, there was a really lovely sort of serendipitous sort of timing thing, like an intersection of a couple of things that happened on that Sunday when the BAFTAs aired. Because earlier that day, I'd been to a screening of the the great Sally Potter film, Orlando. Uh, whose costumes were designed by Sandy Powell, who won uh, a BAFTA Fellowship Award that evening for her amazing, well-documented and very well-respected career in costume design in cinema uh, for doing things such as, you know, The the Irishman and winning Oscars for The Young Victoria and The Aviator for costume design and just really being one of the greatest forces in cinematic costumes. And the fact that, you know, I saw, you know, Orlando for the first time and thought it was so wonderful as part of a, a gender on screen season that I think we'll be examining in a in a future episode and then she won that award that night I thought that's just a lovely I love that that's occurred on the same day it was just it was very it, it, it put a spring in my step. Moving away from the BAFTAs um, I wanted to talk a little bit about a topic that's been uh, going around lately about editing and changing of work and I guess in the news at the moment, it's been very focused on written work. So, for example, there's the big debate about Roald Dahl's books being changed. But also the debate around uh, the James Bond books that are being reprinted because of the anniversary. A lot of the language and some of the things that happen in the book are being changed to fit in with more mo- modern moral values. But this isn't anything new for film feel like there are plenty of films that on a re-release have had scenes edited out it's quite a common practice i wanted to talk to you a little bit about what you what your opinion is and if they're going to be editing the bond books does that also mean that we go back into the old bond films and have a you know because there's a lot there's oh, i mean that's that scene in the in the barn things like the you know can we take those out should we take them out so in general on this topic, I am, I wouldn't say dead set against it, but I'm generally not a fan of of excising problematic scenes from, from past films in the effort of pertaining to, you know, current moral values, because, you know, so many different messages and ideology and thematic examinations, you know, just countless, countless, you know, hours and hours of material has been spilled over so many different political, social and emotional topics in the history of cinema. And, you know, not everyone is going to agree with everyone's individual perspectives. And also it does pertain to, you know, the the zeitgeist and societal view of the time. And I think it's a part of both the growth of cinematic storytelling and our own growth as, you know, human beings, as viewers and of members of, you know, culture and society, that we can look at something that in the past you know, was seen as acceptable, but is now considered as very problematic and recognise that as being, you know, as having a lot of issues, either either from what the technical filmmaking is kind of the lens or the gaze that's you know, that's being shown on screen. I think there's been a lot of re- re-evaluation of the male gaze in cinema recently. And and understand why something doesn't work by today's standards and go, okay, we can acknowledge that how can we improve on that how can we be more progressive in our in our attitudes on screen in story in storytelling and also adopt a filmmaking stylistic approach that accentuates that that complements that that informs that in a positive way you know i don't want to say too much on this particular point because it will it will come up in our in our gender on screen episode but one of the films that we viewed as part of that season was chosen for the very reason that it's just abhorrently 
problematic with its representation of trans people by today's standards. I mean, at the time it was viewed as, I read some old reviews that said, you know, ingenious, incredibly well-written, you know, scary, insightful. And you just look at it now and go, it's so misogynistic and voyeuristic. And, you know, when viewing it alongside the other films in the season, we were, we were able to go, okay, that's, you know, wholly negative. Here's an example of how we don't repeat ourselves and repeat our mistakes with regards to representation. And now let's go on to some films like Orlando that do it so much better. So I do think it's a part of growth in ourselves as artists to have that debate. And I think erasing, you know, the problematic parts from previous cinema history doesn't help that debate. One thing that makes this a little bit trickier for me, because I think in general I'm with you, I think it's important to know where we've been to know where we're going. I think it's important to recognise and to study the mistakes of the, the past and how society was. I think it's almost dangerous to lose that. Um, but at the same time, it's the whole reissue of these texts that's kind of making it a bit more difficult for me. So, for example, in the James Bond books, in one of the James Bond books, there's the use of the N-word. Oh, well, wow. I wasn't aware. <laughs> the, yes, well, this is one of the things that's being taken out um, for a reissue. In the case of in the case of that, in the case of, you know, is it a fact that maybe we should just let these old texts die <laughs> um, instead of giving them a new life? Or is it correct to kind of give these films a new life with these edits? So I mean I guess this also applies to cinema. We've we've seen countless reissues or remasterings of old films, the Bond films included. I mean, I don't think any of the films contain language quite that bad, but there's definitely some dicey stuff in there um, <laughs> surrounding, you know, specifically its portrayal of the Asian community and also, you know, uh, people of colour. It, Yeah, Bond, Bond films would be messy. Um, so in the case of reissuing, putting these in front of a new audience, packaging, the, packaging them for profit, does that change anything? Hmm. Does it does does it change anything? I mean, I guess I think with regards to the James Bond pictures, they're such kind of a cornerstone of of British culture, and you know do do display such su such good you know filmmaking and from the action and spy thriller genre, and have some and hold a lot of and hold a very dear place in a lot of British filmgoers' hearts that I guess we wouldn't want to erase them. And I guess reissuing them with maybe some parts taken out means we can enjoy them uh, without having to, you know, you know, wince and cringe at some of the more misguided aspects of them. And I guess in, I guess in the case of that particular franchise, you know, the, the problematic aspects of them, like the ones you just mentioned, and also the quite sexist portrayal of women in a lot of scenarios you know is uh, is uncomfortable now and does kind of sour you know the overall joyous otherwise joyous experience of those films and their sort of <laughs> zany action laden narratives and it's well documented you know some of the problems with them in the past so maybe in the case of that franchise we can acknowledge what it has been in the past and in terms of reissuing it and allowing new audiences to enjoy it we can I'm not I don't necessarily have a particular problem with taking it out in that regard because it means that you know we're not we're not souring the experience for future generations they can just enjoy it without inhibition maybe the the real solution is kind of being a bit of a disclaimer at the front and kind of acknowledging the history before you even go into the film I know there there mm -hmm. have be, already been a few films to do this where they've basically been saying film was released at this time when this was happening this is what was uh this is what the social situation was there is going to be offense you know language that is offensive and incorrect in the film uh, just before you go in it's still I, th I think it's a very individual process to kind of decide what would get taken out from what film and what would stay in I think it's a really fine balance but I think at no point should we try and uh, pretend that that content wasn't there. No. Um, you know, that's not the right thing to do. I, I'd, it's almost like if you reissued Bond, for example, 
picking out. I mean, one you you'd wouldn't have much of a film for the for the first <laughs> couple of ones if you took out like all the sexism, all the issues. So you'd have a man doing a backflip at the end of the film. Um, <laughs> but you know, if you if you were to take them out and then you the, the old versions weren't available anymore, that's what I'd have a problem with. Hmm. I guess yeah, me too. for in a way putting it out in a cinema or you know kind of reissuing I guess it's a discussion to have it's really difficult I don't think there's one right answer because I think that new audiences should be able to enjoy these things but we shouldn't forget what they are and were and we also shouldn't forget that there are also new works and new films coming out that kind of explore these kind of things that are relevant to us today you know there are modern spy films there are modern do we need to reissue james bond Um, or can we make our own for this generation you know is is that the way to go yeah yeah a complicated one but thank you for thank you for indulging me and giving me your thoughts of course okay so let's jump let's finally into our first review and we're going to start off with Broker. So I've been really excited for Broker as the director Hirokazu Koreeda's previous film Shoplifters which I think won the Palm Door back in 2017 I was a tremendous fan of. I particularly was taken with his style of filmmaking and his subject leanings in his humanist explorations of family units formulating on the the fractured fringes of society and on the fringes of the law in the most unlikely and arguably twisted set of circumstances. There's always kind of an underlying sense of darkness that he kind of subverts with a sense of joy and optimism that I find really, really compelling. He's been compared to Yasujiro Ozu, whose work was so revolutionary in the development of Asian cinema. I mean, Koreeda's a... Japanese filmmaker, as was Yasujiro Ozu, but Broker is actually a South Korean set drama. Ozu was so revolutionary in how he deconstructed societal expectations of gender roles and the constructs of family in Japan and post-war Japan and Japan at the turn of the 20th century. And what I love about films like Shoplifters and now Broker is how he takes these layered subversive views of family and their microcosmic view of a wider society and he then dares us to peer into activities and areas in the underbelly of society that initially appear questionable and potentially actually morally bankrupt before upending our instinctive judgment on these characters by expanding on their very potentially quite understandable and complex reasons for making the choices that they do. So Broker is, as I said, set in South Korea, and it opens with a woman leaving, a young woman leaving her baby, not quite newborn baby, but recently born baby, uh, a baby box, which is a real thing that occurs in Korea. They're set outside churches and they're essentially there so that mothers who do not feel they can look after the child or do not want the child can leave the baby and it can then be taken in by the church and given on to be adopted. And she does this and goes away, but then attempts to come back to the church to retrieve the child and finds that he has been taken. What's actually happened is there are two men that work in that particular church that she dropped her baby off at who delete the security camera footage of the mothers leaving those children. And then they take that child and they essentially traffic the child and take them to another family and sell that child on for profit. Now they kind of partially justify that view, you know, making money out the, you know, they're making money out of a difficult situation, but also finding you know, a child, a family that actually will care for the child and potentially give them a better future, but they are profiteering off that exercise. Uh, the woman finds these men and after, you know, having a somewhat lengthy argument about the process, they decide to go on the road together to sell her child on to another family. And all the while they're being pursued by uh, two sets of police officers who have an interest in both these two men who are conducting this trafficking business, but also the young mother who's the reasons for which become more apparent as the film progresses. Now, I absolutely loved this for a number of reasons. The screenplay is just excellent. One thing that's markedly different here from Shoplifters is is that 
the wider thematic and social messaging in shoplifters emerged out of the very in-the-moment naturalistic drama. Broker is much more forthright and direct in how its dialogue and character conversations quite pointedly debate and break down these social ideas and the implications and kind of the the very kind of dark reality of of what they're doing. But it never ever feels like the cast are, are surrogates or mouthpieces for the director. I mean, in more kind of theatrically laden dramas, it does feel as though the characters in the hands of kind of lesser writers and filmmakers can be just, you know, responsible for delivering the director or writer's viewpoint or the societal themes. They're not actually coming from people or don't feel, and don't feel like the opinions of the characters. In, it never feels that way in Broker. It's not really a place for the director to relentless, relentlessly speechify their own thoughts on these human issues. Every social point that a character makes is deeply rooted and mo- in and motivated by their family history, their upbringing, their surroundings, their in-the-moment response to what is going on in the story at that particular point, their views on what a family is and the morally great situations they find themselves in. And it's actually incredibly refreshing to see characters that actively respond and criticise and unpack the the implications of what they're doing, especially when it is, you know, illegal and dark and, again, you know, not morally straightforward. You know, and and also then seeing these conflicting opinions of the of the cast and how they change and alter each other's perspectives. The writing is also brilliant in the way it kind of frequently wrongfoots the viewer with its transforming characters. You know, hidden past experiences that influence present decisions resurface, alliances shift. We come to rethink entire character arcs and personalities. Sympathies are strengthened and strained, and who we most identify and empathise with changes over the course of the drama. And such reveals and coincidences may have felt contrived in the hands of a lesser writer or director, as though the friction were like artificially injected to then siphon unearned character development or elicit shock from the audience. You know, we're just going to throw in a revelation just to like, you know, add some add some spice that doesn't feel like it is it naturally occurs from the from the character interaction. But the plotting here is so elegant and it serves to really extensively deepen that examination of what it means to be a parent and how we view our responsibilities to each other in a family unit, opposed to what society dictates those values and duties are. It's very even-handed with the cast. Everyone is sympathetic, convincing in their motivations. That density and character across everyone in the cast feels completely earned and really well built out across you know the two hour and five minute runtime which never at all feels slow the fluidity in the genre hopping is also remarkable it reminded me a lot of actually how parasite blurs genres i really love the way broker it so engrossingly metamorphosizes it in tone and genre throughout you know that essential like baseline subject of human trafficking seems sounds so dark on paper and yet the film is it has early on it has the weight of a heavy-hearted social drama but it so gracefully and expertly weaves in you know the elements of a farcical crime caper a taut detective thriller in how the police are pursuing them you know a buoyant and optimistic road film a comedy with great ease in its delivery of humor you know this alongside the uniformly excellent cast you know kept that ever-changing tone compelling and it really culminated in some very stirring and moving scenes towards the back end, which have been described as kind of teetering on the edge of cloying and sentimental by some other critics, but it never felt that way to me. It's so unwavering in its emotional conviction, Broker, that it just effortlessly swept me off my feet. And it's balancing a very dark subject matter with brightness and you know effervescent glee throughout. It also very genuinely and earnestly showed and recognised that often in life, tragedy and bleakness is intersected with humour. I love when a film doesn't ignore that. It, you know, examinations of dark subject matter doesn't need to be, you know, unforgivingly and relentlessly dour. And it makes the story feel all the more grounded and real when comedy is naturally fed into that. The score is fantastic. It's the same composer that actually did the music for Parasite. 
who I'm a big who I was who I was a big fan of his work in that film. The piano chord chords and embellishments have this terrific operatic tinge that's just pronounced enough that it never feels kind of cheesy or overly dramatic, but it gives a, a weight and scope to the message and the issues the film is tackling, meaning, you know, it's accentuating the severity of the subject matter enough that it never forgets the darkness that's in there. Elsewhere, there are these gorgeously pristine and resonant finger-picked guitar melodies and arrangements that so deftly bring forth the generosity of spirit in the film. And it and it and that generosity of spirit that it has in its approach to its characters, but it doesn't overtly direct you to exactly how we should feel, or overtly display the characters' emotions. It still leaves plenty of space for you to make your own mind up about uh, the story and form your own emotional conclusions. Coriander, he also shows, I think, near flawless judgment and comprehension of where to place the camera, how to angle a frame and how far to dis or close to distance the camera from the actors in order to accentuate the subject of a scene. You know, shooting from further away in order to show a character as figuratively stranded or basking in the space and joy of a life-affirming moment, cutting back to, cutting back to a close-up of an actor from slightly behind in order to show a brief moment of where they're partially obscured uh, to display introspection or vulnerability in response to a conversation creating these ever-changing moving tableaus of multiple cast members supporting each other or shooting characters on their own to, you know, in intimately embracing their regrets and sadness and hope, holding the camera on a character whilst others leave the frame. And they are still looking at that, looking at those characters that have moved off, uh, remaining in the space that they're in. Uh, and just with a subtle push in, you know, softly accenting that feeling of abandonment that's been shown there all the while giving space in the frame and edit to let the actors to let the actors performances evolve and mature and command the the humor and drama in in any given scene i thought this was just wonderful and i think it's got really gone in high on my list of favorite films from the past year and i've got very little negative to say about it at all i would give this my highest rating of an A plus and I would say I actually prefer this to shoplifters as of now. I thought this was just fantastic. It's it's on release right now and I would highly, highly recommend it. Our next film is, oh. is um my my pick for best picture. Oh cocaine bear. I've, I'm so excited for this. Um, we, we're on a theme this week because, you know, last week we reviewed The Bear, which also has cocaine <laughs> in it. Um, and now we're reviewing Cocaine Bear. So, Billy, what did you make of this cinematic gold? I hadn't even made that comparison with The Bear. That's brilliant. So thank you for that. Uh, adding even more humour here. Cocaine Bear is based upon the 1985 true story of a drug smuggler who dropped uh, several duffel bags of cocaine out into uh, the woods in a national park in Georgia. A bear then accidentally ingested, uh, I think, over 175 pounds of cocaine and uh, almost instantly died. And that bear is now, I think, stuffed and can be seen in a mall in Kentucky because, because America. Of course, you know that wouldn't that story wouldn't make much of a film, and Hollywood is never satisfied. So, of course, the execs were going, "Hmm, what if said bear went on a cocaine-fueled homicidal rampage?" And that's how we have Cocaine Bear. Now, I think <laughs> the title alone gives you a clue into exactly the level of cinematic atrocities that your mind is going to be permanently branded with over the course of viewing this film. It gave me very, like, Sharknado, um, Jurassic Shark, those kind of vibes. <laughs> you know, I wonder if the, egg, if the execs listened to pitch meetings for Sharknado and then had the pitch for Cocaine Bear and went, oh, go on then. <laughs> Afterwards, that's another one. <laughs> yeah, well, why not? We've already got two. Let's just let's just roll with it. it uh, it's like that scene in *The Clockwork Orange* where Alex Delarge is forced to watch that horrifying war footage with the contraption that forcibly holds open his eyes. 
that's what the that's what I can liken the experience of watching Cocaine Bear to. And I went into this knowing full well I was going to be subjected to the most odorous cinematic cesspit imaginable, battening down the hatches and calling DEFCON 1 on the levels of cringe I was about to experience. There is a voiceover in the second scene of Cocaine Bear that features a hiker recounting the shoddy, in the shoddiest and creepiest Southern American accent you've ever heard. The first time he ever met his partner, who, he is, who is in the scene with him, and he says... I knew from the second I laid eyes on her that I wanted to make a child with that woman. <laughs> and I just thought, you know, I think it's official that Sonnet 116 by William Shakespeare has been usurped as the absolute <laughs> pinnacle of romantic poetry. The love radiating from that statement, statement just captures the heart and soul. I fear I might have given myself a, a severe long-lasting spinal injury from how hard I cringed at that moment. Elsewhere, Cocaine Bear almost incessantly proves that it has the tact and restraint and cinematic finesse of a malfunctioning flamethrower. It feels strange to single out the score in a film like this that's so hellbent as being as being as aggressively awful as humanly possible, but I have to in this case because it's just too funny not to. There are there's this moment where there are moments where the incongruence between the visuals and accompanying music is like staggering, like mind-boggling. There's a moment where there's a very imposing muscular character who very emphatically makes the makes the admission, oh, I need to take a piss. And then as he wanders into the bushes in the national park to relieve himself, this banger trap beat is playing in the background of the score. <laughs> and I just thought to myself, ah, oh, yes, blaring rap music is certainly the most befitting theme here. Rap is my urination anthem. <laughs> I feel I feel at my most gangster when I'm teeing my bladder in the <laughs> middle of the woods. <laughs> And there's other moments, oh lord, where there are these really peppy, bright, jaunty, 80s throwback, Stranger Thing-esque synthesizer leads that are cheesier than an industrial-sized wheel of camembert. Like, over... There's There's even a bit where those same bits of music play over... Like the bear snorting a line of cocaine off a severed off a severed leg, and I thought, ah, oh, yes, I'll definitely be showing this joyful slice of bubblegum to my whole family someday. <laughs> and those, you know, sugary, you know, sweets are laid over a color grade that is so bland it makes Bohemian Rhapsody look like a Vincent van Gogh painting. It's like the colorist fell into a coma and their head landed on the desaturate button and then they just never bothered to fix it. Um, I also found like a lot of humor in the fact that Margot Martindale, Kerry Russell and Matthew Reese are all in this film acting alongside as they were, you know, alongside each other in The Americans, which is a TV show about undercover Russian spies posing as an ordinary American family to complete espionage operations in Washington during the Cold War. Now, their ability to convincingly play people repeatedly changing between various identities in that show was top tier, but it's absolutely nothing compared to their ability here to pretend not to laugh. If there was an Olympic sport in not cracking a smile, Kerry Russell would be a four-time gold medalist. I bow down to that woman's ability to keep a straight face in these scenes. There's like another point, there's like this insufferable character who's perpetually crying about his deceased wife whilst out trying to retrieve the missing cocaine. Otherwise, they're going to get stalked by the cartel going, where's our coke? I have seen bookshelves... I've seen Ikea bookshelves that can emote more convincingly than this guy. And the dialogue. Oh, oh, heaven on earth. Lord have mercy. Take me now, sweet baby Jesus. The dialogue. It makes the dialogue in Knock at the Cabin look like a T.S. Eliot poem. I mean, it's... <laughs> In our review of that film, I described the dialogue as ear-scraping. Well, if the dialogue in Knock at the Cabin is ear-scraping, then the dialogue in Cocaine Bear is a root canal. Like, there is a... 
there is a scene between two younger characters that was so excruciating. It felt like I levitated off the ground and had a religious experience. If my name or involvement was within a mile of the script for that scene, I would be sending a cease and desist letter to the distributors begging for the removal of any evidence of my involvement with that, with that scene. To make matters worse, at the end of that scene, the kids cut open the packets of cocaine they found in the woods that the bear is looking for with pen knives and they scoop out lumps of cocaine big enough to down an African elephant and then they tuck into them like they're lapping up scoops of angel delight. <laughs> oh God. Thought of this? Who thought it would be a good idea? And it, it has to be a contender for one of the worst film scenes I've seen in a decade. I mean, isn't that what people are going for when they go and see Cocaine Bear? Like, what I really want to know is, does this film know it's bad? If it if it knows it's bad, that almost makes it worse. The best way to do a film like this is to play it completely straight, do it the most serious way that you possibly can. Like, we want it to be so bad that it's good. That's, that's what it needs to be. If it's kind of a bit too tongue-in-cheek, that's when it loses me. Mm. So where does where does this land? It, I think, in the worst way possible, it lands in the middle. It kind of it's self aware enough that it kind of knows how awful it is, but it takes itself seriously enough that it can't quite fully commit to being a complete satirical B B movie joke fest or like a bit of grimy grindhouse entertainment. It just occupies that middle ground, which I think is just the worst possible approach it could have taken. One thing that I'll give it is that I feel like Cocaine Bear has got more people in the cinema than most things that have come out recently. So credit where yeah, credit is due. Yeah, like credit where credit's Cocaine due. Bear. And also, I mean, you kind of do get what... get You get exactly what you're going for. You know exactly what you're heading in for when you go to see this, and you do get it. You know, and one thing I will give it props on is how entertainingly violent it is. It goes surprisingly hard on the gore. This film has no qualms about hurling around viscera and dismembered body parts for the sake of a gag, which does kind of make for some gro- you know great schlocky grindhouse tinge entertainment. You know, like I said, the problem is is that it's at least it seems at least partially aware of how awful it is, but doesn't take itself seriously enough that it can't fully work as a genuine joke film. You know, it doesn't it doesn't completely tonally commit to the zaniness and insanity of the story. It also groan inducingly tries to tie in heartwarming messages about the importance of family. And I thought to myself, hold on, what what in the Fast and Furious Vin Diesel live life <laughs> uh, live life a quarter mile at a, a time is going on here? You know, for once in my life, I don't want. And I don't want the exposition, I don't want the characters, I don't want the family message. I just want the narcotics and the murderous bear, <laughs> and let's call it a day. Just imagine you, like, you know, in a club or something, just going up to someone saying, I want the narcotics. Which is a scenario that no one would ever see me in, which just makes it all the more hilarious. There's a set piece... <laughs> where there's an open-door ambulance that's hurtling down a road with two bleeding characters nearly falling out, screaming at each other to get out of the way so they can shoot the bear charging towards them, while I Just Can't Get Enough by Depeche Mode is blaring through the speakers of the ambulance. And you know, I thought to myself during that scene, now this to me is cinema. The baptism scene in The Godfather is but a mere footnote to the filmmaking ingenuity on display here. And I I really did just rethink my entire cinematic life at that moment. I will wrap up my thoughts on Cocaine Bear by saying that there is a character who dies in the very first scene of the film. That actor is the luckiest member of the cast. F. 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 I I was sure that that was going to be an A+. You. I thought really that, you know, broker, what made you think? broker cocaine bear were going to be neck and neck. Obviously, oh, you know, there's a you know, there's so little cinematic separ- you know, separation between broker and cocaine bear. They really should be nominated together for best picture. <laughs> they're, they're joint winners, <laughs> clearly. Of of course. <laughs> well, um, that was a delight. Thank you 
Um, thank you for that for that review. Anyway, we've we've still got three reviews to get through, and not a lot of time. So oh. let's let's first let's go into our next review and see how speedy you can be. <laughs> so our next <laughs> film is Nostalgia. So Nostalgia is a Italian drama tells the story of a successful na- uh, businessman named Felice. He was born Italian but brought up in Naples. He's been absent from the city for 40 years and has achieved great financial uh, success and in, in career success living in Egypt. He returns to the city to visit and assist his mother, who's grown more frail in her old age. But in doing so, he becomes reacquainted with the, the memories he has in Naples and the structural makeup of the city and his past experience living there. He rediscovers a nostalgic affection for the place. But that rose-tinted perspective on the city and a place that does not resemble anymore the place where he, that he so fondly remembers growing up, that rose-tinted perspective, it becomes problematic and dangerous when he starts to put down roots there and pursue a past friend who may now be responsible for the organised crime that riddles the, the area where he spent his childhood. Based off the slightly lukewarm trailer, I didn't go into nostalgia exactly with peaked interest. However, it really, really exceeded my expectations and I left really, really impressed with the film. And the thing I loved most about it was how textured the filmmaking and the storytelling was. So much of the storytelling is visual and very evocative, despite the fact that a lot of the drama is coming from, you know, the character's deeply cerebral and psychological view of his hometown. A lot of it's very internalised. But the direction does an excellent job of externalising those viewpoints. Oftentimes it's able to communicate these ideas with brief but very purposeful shot choices and mise-en-scene that don't call too much attention to themselves either. Doing all of this, it shows a great handle by the filmmakers on what I would refer to as economy of storytelling, getting a lot of narrative mileage out of a deceptively simple or seemingly small, inconsequential moment through a through a really thoughtful filmmaking decision. There's a moment where Felice is walking through a flea market, you know, through a number of street vendors stalls and the very wide angle in the camera that's greatly pulled back and situated on a balcony, you know, vantage point on the apartment. It views him as though he's being swallowed by the bustling street. The way the camera is positioned as well in other scenes, it, it shows them as being more open and inviting in the past in the flashbacks, but then more cavernous and angular in the present, which is very striking. There's a conceit of having flashbacks shown in this kind of super eight, not four by three, but this kind of very boxy uh, aspect ratio that is central in the frame. It kind of reminds me of a 1910s film. And in the context of the trailer, I thought that could appear potentially quite gimmicky. But the use of match cuts and juxtaposing those landmarks in the past and present, you know, giving it that jumbled chronology and how he views, the, how he remembers the place versus how he's viewing it now. It's, it's very meaningful and seamless in how it's executed in the final film. The symbolism's also quite well incorporated. Felice buys a motorcycle to relive an activity from his youth, but a street gang sets that on fire. Kind of, again, you know, not being able to recapture what he has before and maybe being delusional on that. Visiting his mother and finding that she's no longer in her apartment from his childhood on that now been forced to move to the ground floor, very dingy and claustrophobic apartment. It's really baked, that symbolism is baked into the, the very fabric of the screenplay. And it contributes to this really fascinating and adeptly constructed view of the power of nostalgia and the blindness and pain that comes with it. And you know, Pierre Francesco Favina, he delivers a really gripping and layered central performance. His steady and controlled repression and emotional reserve and how that blossoms into glee and euphoria, but also unravels into anguish at other moments. It's quite magnificent in how much multiplicity and detail he puts into that character and how he makes those layers more apparent as the story progresses. The script also maintains a nice level of ambivalence towards him. It doesn't absolve him of his past mistakes, but it makes him all the more it makes him all the more compelling as a protagonist for that reason. I didn't always know exactly how I felt about him and my sympathies and views on his on who he was and his personality and his approach to situations shifted a lot as the film went along. Towards its final stretch, it does succumb to some plot machinations that are more kind of generically crime drama orient- orientated and it ends on a note that is so, that is so kind of blunt and callous and pulls the rug out so hard from under the audience that it, to the point where it's kind of slightly dissatisfying and a bit disquieting but on reflection that does add to the debate the, the central debate in the film between nostalgia and the delusion that sort of permeates Felice's experience of, of reintegrating into 
the place where he came from. So I was I was really really impressed with this, and you know the the way it tack the complex way it tackled nostalgia and that sort of social environment in the past and the present, and how the filmmaking complemented that was a was very impactful and very intriguing and very well constructed. I'd give this an A. I was I would also recommend this. going to move on to Joyland but we're going to very very briefly just kind of pass over this because I think we're going to do something more detailed with this particular film in another episode but can you Mm -hmm. give us just a brief overview about what the film is and what you would rate it without giving us any spoilers so in the briefest of terms the it's Pakistani drama that revolves around a man who is not really adhering to the archetypal duties that you know, Pakistani society dictates should be followed by a man in terms of his employment and his you know, duty and role within the family as a very overbearing father. He gets a job, but it's not in the typical job that would be you know, viewed as acceptable by the social situation he is in. He gets a job as a backup dancer at the local erotic dance theatre and is in a production that's headed up by Bieber, who's a transgender dancer. And it's about their blossoming relationship and how they fall in love and how they teach each other things about life and their own you know, philosophies on work and how they exist in a world that doesn't really accept them. I like this very much. I thought it's... it's for a debut feature, it's very, very adventurous in its in its structure and its formal filmmaking approach. There's some moments where the director allows moments to breathe, you know, very, very long takes, very kind of long gradual push-ins, but also kind of bright, you know, sharp flashes of colour and quick cutting and propulsive camera moves and some of the dance and performative sequences. It has a real vivacity and energy about the film, which is kind of very... It really complements the bright and vibrant personality of a bunch of the characters which i've and then contrast that with sort of the the bleak sort of constraining conditions societal conditions that the rest of the kind of cast find themselves in it also doesn't just examine this relationship it also examines the hater's wife mumtaz and how she feels that her romantic needs as a woman and her sort of career needs and not being met or facilitated considering the fact the patriarchal society and how it views her and kind of the there is sort of free form ebb and flow between those kind of couple of different storylines is again kind of structurally unconventional the drama doesn't evolve in doesn't evolve in the order that you necessarily expect events to transpire in and whilst it was kind of very dexterous in how in its narrative progression it never really, it never lost me. I do have some reservations about the waiting between certain storylines in the latter half. But we'll and get into it, all of that at a later date, I think. Yes, yeah, I won't, I won't give specific details don't go, of that. Don't go too far into it. So what would, no, you, no, no. what would you rate Joyland? I'd give it an A-. And, I, you know, despite those sort of narrative imbalances towards the back end and also a central choice with its aspect ratio that I wasn't that I did adjust to over the course of watching it but wasn't too keen on at times it maybe led to me not loving it as much as some other people have but I still liked it very much and I thought the way it looked at people struggling with expectations versus who they actually are as people plus it's very very progressive and heartfelt examination of trans identity and trans relationships I thought was very very emotive and moving and again just that vibrancy in the filmmaking was was a real joy to behold especially in a debut feature it's very accomplished I would give this an A minus very very much enjoyed it and we'll look forward to your more detailed thoughts um, in a future episode so keep an eye out for that um, so our final review of this evening is The Sun um, starring Hugh Jackman mm-hmm Hugh Jackman, Laura Dern, Vanessa Kirby, and what's the... Zen McGrath is the son, just had to remind myself of his name. I think he's a 
is a newcomer. So this is direct, written and directed by Florian Zeller, also co-written by Christopher Hampton, who were the team behind the Oscar-winning dimension-focused drama The Father from a few couple of years ago that Anthony Hopkins won, very deservedly won, a Best Actor Oscar for. It centres around a fractured family unit. Uh, Hugh Jackman's Peter is now living with his new wife, Beth, played by Vanessa Kirby, his ex-wife, Laura Dern. Kate is her character. She's kind of in the background of all of this. And it's, the family has been splintered for a very long time, and he's quite estranged from his son, Nicholas. And it becomes apparent that Nicholas hasn't been going to school. Kate approaches Peter and says, you know, I've just got a phone call that says Nicholas hasn't been to school in a month. And they notice that he has, you know, visible scars and marks on his body and that he is noticeably more withdrawn in terms of his communication and they start to you know understand we worry about him and, it, and it's an examination of very important issues such as depression and self-harm and how those issues uh, can really really strain and affect a family unit and the difficulty between and the friction that occurs between what the the victim of that those conditions are experiencing versus the family's efforts to try and support and under, support that person and understand try and understand what they're going through and the challenges that they face there. One of the things that's very clear early on in the sun is that we're being delivered a far more conventional family drama in terms of the rhythm of its interactions, its structural peaks and valleys in terms of tension, and it's more grounded scenarios. Whereas the father had a far more disorientingly powerful blurring of reality and a great balance between raw character work with unsettling forays into the surreal and psychological you know in how it very abstractly it very convincingly physicalized the abstract realm of dementia and used that to create empathy with the person suffering from that and it was really really remarkable for how it managed to do that now it can be argued that the way dementia distorts the victim's perception of reality lends itself much greater to the use of abstract storytelling techniques than a condition like depression that's being explored in the sun. But I still think it would have been far more compelling to see that same kind of uh, visual representation for a complex mental condition shown here in the sun, which sadly it doesn't have, which I think already kind of like places it you know a tier below the father in terms of it not standing out as much in terms of its formal approach to showing you know that mental illness i've seen the complaint leveled at the sun in by several critics that the sterility of its environments and settings constricts the performances and the emotiveness of the drama i don't actually agree with that so much for me the design of the apartments are rotund and winding enough that the blocking and camera movement feels quite fluid and it doesn't have that overly stilted blocking and compact you know rectangular equilateral stage design of something like the whale has which i felt did suffer from this issue that's being leveled at the sun you know the the stagey theatrical you know condition that's been overhauled from its theatrical adaptation you know stifling the drama i thought the sun actually did a good job of feeling cinematic and not like a play despite the fact that it is based on one the performances are strong, particularly from Hugh Jackman. The tense sort of repression and rigidity of his posture and movement at times, it really effectively displays the internal push-pull dynamic between anger incited by confusion at how his son is behaving, helplessness and compassion for his son as well. Zen McGrath is, I think, also convincingly portrays the, the, the vacuous, depressive sadness and emptiness and exhaustion that results from that condition although i would have liked more ferocity from him in the more volatile performance moments where he is lashing out it those moments did feel somewhat neutered and a little bit strained on a performance level from my point of view i think i would really applaud the film in general on its very sensitive tone when exploring some very very difficult issues it shows just enough visual detail of the effects of depression and self-harm without ever devolving into like a garish spectacle or any thing that felt in the realms of exploitation. It's very earnest in its examination of those issues. And I think they should be explored more on screen in cinema because they are so important and affect such a, a large number of people in a very deep way 
and I think it, the fact that this film is opening up more of a dialogue on that is a win in of itself. I do unfortunately think that the film is largely held back by the writing, the dialogue overall being very stilted and unnatural. The wording of many lines is clumsy and not to me reflective of how a person in a genuine conversation would express the ideas that they are. That part of the film, for me, falls foul of the stage play put on film you know, idea. Where the structure of the lines uh, feels overly mannered and precisely worded to the point of being stiff. And it has the exact opposite feel of the loose and inviting improvisational quality of the conversations in, say, a Richard Linklater film that I think would have been far more befitting here. You know, as a byproduct of that, a lot of the plot also doesn't ever rise above fairly tepid melodrama. In some conversations, the film broaches the very confounding, difficult to understand complexities of how depression feels and what motivates people to self-harm when in that state. Many times I felt it was heading in that direction very positively, but sadly stopped short of unpacking that to a particularly powerful degree. Both these issues did unfortunately leave the drama feeling somewhat inert to me and lacking the depth that I feel could have robustly sustained the over two hour runtime. It did. I wouldn't go as far to say I was bored, but I wasn't as engaged as I feel I should have been. And the lack of emotional and psychological detail in the script meant that it felt somewhat surface level, which dulled the punch and reach of the messages, which I did think was a shame. One thing I will credit the film on, though, again, is just structurally it's quite intelligent in how the screen time, I I would say, is more heavily weighted towards the parents. And that means that when the son misleads the parents with information about where he is or how he's behaving, you know, their confusion and shock and how disorientated and the, the sort of emotional whiplash they feel is very convincing because we feel that as an audience member because we are kept in the dark about what Nicholas is doing and then when he expresses that we are shocked as the parents are and towards the back end it kind of I I worried that the film was going to go down a more sentimental avenue where it was going to pull some punches uh, which thankfully it didn't I kind of my initial interpretation of the scene where I felt like oh it's trying to mislead me here and it's actually going to punch me in the face at the end it did succeed in doing that and it it doubled down on the kind of the lacerating pain of the situation but again just you know the tepid melodrama and the the kind of slightly amateurish theatrical nature of the writing did unfortunately leave the drama feeling no more than average for me sadly i feel i feel like there's a good film in here trying to break out but i don't think it quite managed to punch through and I would overall give The Sun a C+. And that is everything for our episode this week. What have we got coming up next week, Billy? So we've got a number of really strong releases coming, coming back to cinemas actually next week. We have The Quiet Girl, which I've mentioned a number of times on the podcast so far. So far. I saw it last year. It's up for the Best International Feature, Oscar, Irish language film, which we don't get very often. I'll be a I'll be reviewing that. Also a Belgian film called Close, which is up for the Oscar too. That's coming to cinemas uh, shortly and to streaming as well about a month after. I saw it as part of the London Film Festival screenings last year. I'm very much looking forward to talking about that. It's a 2022 favourite. The BAFTA winning After Sun and critical favourite After Sun is also coming back to cinemas for a very brief period in a couple of weeks. So I just wanted to give everyone a heads up of that. about a week in advance just to when it comes out, I think on the 10th. So we'll be reviewing that in more depth. We'll also be doing the new uh, Marvel film, Ant-Man. I think Ant-Man and the World of Quantumania, I think it's called. Yeah, it's a, it's a long title this time. It's, <laughs> it's, the it's, Ant-Man it's, and it's the mouthful. Quantumania. Oh, we'll just call it the new Ant-Man and just call it a day there. <laughs> and also this wonderful stop-motion live ac- live-action uh, mockumentary hybrid uh, Marcel the Shell with shoes on which was heartwarming and sombre and quite beautiful as well I'm looking forward to talking about that one too 
So tune in next week to listen to all of those fabulous reviews. Uh, thank you, Billy, and we will see you next week. See you next week. Thank you very much for listening. You can find us on Instagram at the Test Screening Podcast and on Spotify and Apple Podcasts too. We will see you in the next episode. Bye. Bye.